I am so grateful for Ray's powers of analysis to look at ideas and concepts and then connect them to um, so many things. Um, when I listened to him do the, the Darwinism in the church lecture, I think, well, first of all, I feel smarter. Um, <laughs> and I'm grateful to have that perspective. Um, but I'm also intensely practical, and being a woman, I'm intensely relational. And so where I'm bringing in this cultural captivity stuff is, how does it impact the way we live our lives? Um, because we're all culturally captive in one way or another. The problem is we don't know it, because we, we, it's a blind spot, right? So as we've been processing through what does it mean to be culturally captive, the prayer of my heart has been for a couple of years now, Lord, show me where I'm being deceived. Show me where I am being culturally captive, where I am subscribing to the world's ways of looking at things rather than to yours. And he has been so faithful to enlarge my perspective. Um, as Ray mentioned a couple minutes ago, about the how everything is mediated and there's a screen for every purpose and we live according to our iPhones in our pockets or whatever. Um, I'm still listening to a, a book on tape right now called The Next Story by Tim Challies about living on the other side of the digital explosion. And he talks about the power of distraction um, because of all these mediated um, screens in our lives. And we're used to being distracted and obeying the beeps and responding to the distractions. And distractions cause shallow thinking, and shallow thinking leads to shallow living. And as I'm listening to this, I'm realizing, oh, I have totally subscribed to that way of living. I, if I get interrupted or distracted, I you know, say, oh, something shiny. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, something cool over here. And I have to stop and repent and realize that is cultural captivity. So this is where I'm engaging right now with stopping that, you know, calling it what it is. It's a problem, repenting of it, asking for the Lord's help, and trying to really live out Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God, as opposed to be distracted and let Google rule your life. So um, I, I appreciate what it takes to be engaging with this whole cultural captivity idea. And first of all, Ray and I want you to know how much we appreciate you coming here today because that's a scary thing to walk into a class that's talking about are you culturally captive and don't know it. Um, you're being very humble in the, in the fact that you would even walk in this place. We, so, we are so grateful for that. So let's talk about how cultural captivity messes up our lives. I think that um, in terms of, of how it impacts our relationships and the way we do life, cultural captivity is about missing the eternal perspective. It's like taking um, an orange, cutting it in half, and putting one half of the orange behind your back and saying, all of reality is this, this half of an orange. Well, it's dripping juice. Why? Because I've cut it in half. Well, I'm not going to pay any attention to the other half that you've taken off the table. 
if we miss the eternal perspective, if we miss the, the supernatural, unseen, spiritual perspective, we're acting as if there's only half of life, only the material part. Cultural captivity is about focusing on and emphasizing the right now, the physical, the temporal, instead of being aware of the bigger picture that there are two parts to life. There's the physical and the and the immaterial. There is the temporal and the eternal. We live in a world that where they're sewn together. That's what Jesus did. That's what we need to be moving in that direction. Just to give you some scriptural perspective on this, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Um, let me just tell you, I'm 58 years old. I'm dealing with post-polio syndrome now. This is my new life verse. <laughs> Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so what what I'm going to be trying to do for the rest of our time here is contrast the temporal feelings-oriented right now, um, in-your-face messages that we get from the world and from our own flesh as well as from the enemy and contrast it with what the, the Lord has to say. You know, what really strikes me in this passage is how, how real the unseen is. It really was living in that primarily and temporal, like momentary trouble. When you, when you read the list in 2 Corinthians 11 of all the things Paul endured, like momentary? Not I mean, he suffered greatly. It's like momentary. Look, look at all the eternal things that we're grabbing after we can live in. It's so real. One of the best ways that I see cultural captivity is about being a pickle. Now, the way you get a pickle is you take cucumbers and you put them in a jar with a pickling brine. So there's water and vinegar and spices and flavors. And you let the cucumbers sit in the pickling brine over a period of time and the cucumbers soak up the flavors of the pickling brine and they are no longer cucumbers. They turn into pickles because they have absorbed the, um, they've been marinating in the pickling brine. When we're culturally captive, we are like cucumbers that sit in the world's brine and we just absorb it like the cucumbers absorb the flavors of the pickling brine. That's how we turn into pickles. We're, we're pick, we can be pickled Christians because if you bite into one of these pickles in this jar, it's going to taste, it's going to have the texture of a cucumber, but it's going to have the taste of the pickling brine. And... With Christians, what God calls us to do is when somebody bites into you, you ought to taste like Jesus rather than tasting like the world. And what do we do if we realize, oh, my word, I have been absorbing the pickling brine of the world? Well, first we stop and identify it. 
We repent of it, which means to turn 180 degrees, and we say, Lord, help me to marinate myself in your word, in thinking about you, maybe in music about you that is based on truth. And it's amazing what can happen when we... um, stop taking in the messages of the world and we start absorbing the messages of the word. Romans 12.2 says, don't be transformed, um, uh, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the way we do that is to immerse ourselves in God's word and being surrounded by God's people who will speak truth to us. That's what I'm about to do. I'm going to go to three different places of talking about why our relationships are so messed up, why our way of living can be messed up, because we've been immersing immersing ourselves in the world's pickling brine. And one of the things we need to look at is how important it is to immerse ourselves in love and then allow God to love other people through us you know, from receiving his love first. When we love other people, we are going to be like Jesus um, instead of just giving way to whatever our flesh tells us to, to do instead of being like the rest of the world. So we're talking for the most amount of time here about love. The um, the essence of love is serving and self-sacrifice. It's about seeking the other's best interests. And love is why we even exist in the first place. You go back to Genesis 1, you see God as Father, Son, and Spirit, just in this holy hug, loving each other with mutual love and affection and delight and fellowship and respect and affirmation. And they're loving each other and saying, let's open up the circle. Let's make people and bring them into our circle so that we can love on them. Because we're here so God could invite us into his own joy and into his own life. So that's why we're here. It's all about love. So that, you know, the Father, Son, and Spirit took the love that they had for each other and then they created us so they could put that love in us. And when our relationships are messed up, it's because we're not loving each other. It's because we're falling short of God's plan for us. So let's talk about how love gets worked into our, um, our lives and what happens when we don't do it God's way. As we grow in our awareness of how much God loves us, His love will then flow from us to other people. We love him because he first loved us we we love as a response to god's love and then he says now you take that love i put in you and you just send it on out to other people so we don't need to worry about our limited little supply of our love when the lord says i have an infinite amount of love available to you you just stay connected to me and i will just keep pumping love out to you to other people through you so the The first place to get our relationships back on track or to improve them in any way is to work on living loved. It starts by connecting with how loved we are by God and then letting God put that love out through us to other people. So when we start focusing on understanding what it means to be loved, that God loves us all the time. He not only loves us like a parent loves a kid, which sometimes has no feeling attached. You're just doing... You're just doing the right thing. Um, He likes us. God likes us. He delights in us. And nothing interferes with that. 
But it takes a while to, to grow in our, our awareness of the fact that he loves us and he likes us. And when we start becoming aware, I am a beloved child of God. That's my identity. Then, instead of asking, hey, how can you benefit me? That will turn into, how can I serve you? Instead of asking, hey, what is in this for me? How do you make me feel? How do you meet my needs? Then we can be showing that love to others and say, how can I love you best? As opposed to, it's all about me and getting my needs met. We can let God love other people through us. Let's just talk first about marriage relationships. Realizing that not everybody's marriage, married, but the vast majority of people um, at one point or another in their lives end up in that place. So how do we stop being culturally captive in our marriage relationships and do things God's way? Well, um, husbands are called to love your wives as Christ loves the church. And that means being self-sacrificing, laying down. He laid down his life for us, and a husband is called to lay down his life for his wife. Usually that does not mean physically dying for her, but it sure does mean doing a lot of stuff he doesn't want to do. From taking out the garbage to putting up with the fact that a woman's bathroom is a part of the bathroom is probably going to be messier and has a lot more stuff in it than a man's and not fighting against it. You know, there are lots of ways that that works out. It means um, laying aside his preferences to serve the wife, whether it's Christ serving the, his bride, the church, or a husband serving his wife. For a husband, it means being the initiator, being the first to love, the first to apologize, the first to go to the Lord in the, in the, in the Word and in prayer. That's part of what it means to be a man, is to be an initiator. And that's part of the problem with Adam um, when he did not stand up against Eve being deceived by the enemy, by the serpent, and stand up and say, Eve, no, that's not what God said. He was passive. He was not the initiator in speaking truth to her. He was passive. And that passivity is, is a problem and needs to be fought against. With wives... Um, we are called to love our husbands through submission and respect. Showing submission means um, showing a willingness to follow a husband's leading and an invitation to follow a husband's leading. That's part of my job as I love Ray through submission is to say, if you lead me, I will follow. And to pay attention to the steps that he makes to to try to lead me. Sometimes that means I have to pay more attention to what he's saying and doing and suggesting as opposed to what I want. So there's a laying down of my own preferences and my own self-interest there. It means showing respect in words and tone and action. Um, one of the great privileges of my life as a woman who, is, who has been around the block several times, I've walked with the Lord for over three decades, is getting a chance to speak as a Titus II woman into the lives of younger women, about, particularly about how to treat their husbands and, and other men. And be, showing respect, not only being respectful, but showing respect is absolutely huge since that is a man's primary need, is to feel respected. Showing respect means not ridiculing or laughing at the other. 
It means never repeating a private matter um, because that's intimate and private and it's disrespectful to take that outside the, the intimacy of the marriage relationship. It means not assaulting the other's self-esteem, and there are myriad ways to do that, both words and body language, as well as choices and actions we can make. It means never making the other the punchline of a joke, and that goes both ways. I actually learned this idea of not making your spouse the punchline of a joke um, from a man who, from a friend, a male friend of ours, who um, realized that he was not serving his wife or his marriage well by getting his best laughs at her expense. And he, he is a very funny man, but I, at one point his wife said, when you make me the punchline of your joke, I feel disrespected and dishonored and it really makes me want to pull away from you. And he made a decision right then that he always loves to make people laugh, but he would never do it at her expense. And um, it works that way for a woman to feel that way about a husband, too. Um, I've made, personally, I, I've made several very, very serious um, commitments. You know, I don't make Ray the punchline of a joke. Um, I, I never speak about him to other people in a way that is derogatory or disrespectful, in a way that he would be dishonored if he was standing right there in the room. Made that decision um, years ago. She's really good at all those things. Oh. <laughs> the opposite of a loving spirit is a demanding spirit. There is nothing of love or respect in being demanding. And in our culture, um, we're all about demanding what's right, what's demanding what you want, demanding to get your way. And it is an absolute relationship killer. Let me give you a, an example. In Ray's family, um, all of the women in his family, like his mother, his aunts, cousins, um, determined that their kids would have it better than their very difficult, impoverished, immigrant life. They came from um, Eastern Europe to the United States, the, the parents did, and they had it really, really hard in Chicago, scrapping out an existence, and as the people of Ray's parents' generation grew older. They decided, our kids are not going to uh, have such a hard life like we did. And they all worked hard, and they demanded to get their own way because they had sacrificed so much in living this very difficult um, immigrant life. And at one point, um, when his parents were going through some marital difficulties, they would take all four of the siblings in Ray's family, um, Ray was one of them, and they would drag them to the marriage counselor. And at one point, the marriage counselor asked his mom, what will make you happy? And she said, the only thing that will make me happy is to have another baby. I've, had, I've got four. Ray was, I think, like 10 years old at the time. Um, I've got four. I want another one. And... It was a demanding spirit, and it was the only thing that was going to make her happy. So they had another baby. Well, about a year later, she decided, well, that would be kind of crazy to have four older ones and then this little baby. So he needs a brother or sister. So the, sec the number six came along. 
And there was this demanding spirit. The only thing that's going to make me happy is another baby. And if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And so she got her way. But this demanding spirit left scars on everybody's soul. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing loving. There's nothing kind. There's nothing Christ-like about a demanding spirit. And if you look, you can read all the way through the Gospels, and you will never see Christ demanding anything. He asks he requests, but he doesn't demand. Different ways to love other people. We need to be loving in our attitude. Um, and this totally goes against the culture, which is make your own way. Make sure people respect you and they look up to you. But we need to take a one-down position, treating others as more important than ourselves. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty dis- conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, this doesn't actually say that other people are more important to you, but it says treat them as if they were. Treat other people as honored, esteemed individuals in your life. And you look through the Gospels, is that what Jesus did? He absolutely did that. And he modeled that to his disciples. And that's what we are called to do. Don't go around demanding your own way and being selfish, but place everybody a level up and treat them with the honor and the respect that they would would be due them if they were more important than you. Understanding the ground is level at the foot of the cross, but if we treat each other as if we were as if they were more valuable and important than they are, it's amazing how far that will go in our relationships. One of the things that I've seen, uh, we've been married for um, 37 years, and um, all that time, both of us have served to respect and esteem and lift up the other. And when each of us is doing that to each other, it makes a huge difference in the peace factor of our relationship, of our home, of the, the amount of joy and the love that's there. Because when both people are, are trying to lift up and serve the other, everybody does better that way. Another aspect of being loving in our attitude is to adjust our unrealistic expectations. Some wise person once said that expectations are the mother of resentments, (laughs) which really makes a lot of sense. Because if you've got expectations up here and reality is anything less than that, you're going to be resentful. The best thing you can do is bring your expectations down to more normal, um, realistic levels. One way to be unrealistic in our expectation of others is you're going to meet my needs. It's your responsibility. I am putting my eggs in your basket. You are responsible for getting my needs met. You are responsible for keeping me happy. That's a very unrealistic expectation. Another unrealistic expectation is um, if you really loved me, you would read my mind. And I really shouldn't have to ask. Because if you really cared for me, you would know these things. Um, and uh, let me just say that as a woman, we are far worse at this than most men. I, and I, I, let me own that reality right up front. Um, the, the reality is, too, that sometimes we need to come out and say, you know what, I really wish I didn't have to ask. I'm, I'm struggling with this right now. We have a son living with us. Um, I... And he's more than happy to empty the dishwasher, put the stuff away, and load up the dirty dishes whenever I ask. But the reality is, I wish I didn't have to ask. 
You know, it's not like it only happens quarterly. <laughs> this is a daily event. And I really wish I didn't have to ask. And when I say, I would really like it if you would do this without me having to ask, it's, oh, okay, okay. And that may work for mm, 15 hours. Um, it's, it's frustrating, but it's also part of living in a fallen world. Another unrealistic expectation is that you should fill the hole in my heart. I'm, I'm looking to put to you to make me happy. Um, I've got this hole, and you need to fill it. And no human being can fill any hole in any hu- other human being's heart because these holes in our hearts are God-shaped. And so um, we can have very unrealistic expectations that way. Let's talk about anger. That'll really mess with our relationships. How do we love each other in anger? Well, first of all, anger is a part of life. It's part of being made in the image of God because God has feelings and he has boundaries and He, when those boundaries are violated, he gets angry, yet without sin. And so, first of all, it's really helpful not to fight against it as if being angry was somehow subhuman or sub-Christian. I have a friend that told me after he was an adult that um, in his Christian family, they, one of their family rules was, we do not get angry. And so when the kids would get angry because, hello, you're going to get, if you're around other people, eventually you're going to get angry. The parents would say, in our family, we do not get angry. And of course, what did they do? They just put it drove it underground because anger is part of being made in the image of God both of the uh, children once they reached adulthood spent many years in therapy and um, came to the realization that God doesn't say we don't get angry he actually says in Ephesians 4:26, be angry and yet do not sin and don't let the sun go down on your anger when you are angry don't sin in your anger Jesus got mad in the, in the Gospels, appropriately, righteously, never sinfully. But we need to understand it's okay to get angry. The point is we need to, be, um, to use that anger constructively because anger is a sign that there's a problem that needs to be dealt with, that a boundary has been violated. We need to see anger as emotional energy to deal with the problem. And so when we use anger constructively, we can use it to bring about biblical conflict resolution. Anger is emotional energy that gives us that energy to be able to go to another person and say, there's a problem, we need to talk about it. And if we do it biblically, we go to the person that caused the problem or that we are having the problem with or that we sense there's a difficulty with. We go one-on-one to them first. And we bring out you know, deal with the the log in our own eye first and we own our own part in the situation. We lay it out before them. If they don't respond, we grab one or two other people. We bring them into the into the conversation and we talk about it together. And if they still don't respond, we keep opening the circle. That's biblical conflict resolution. Being angry is emotional energy to do something about it so that we um, maintain our relationships rather than stuffing them under the rug, letting things blow up to the point where then we just scream and yell and say hurtful things and do a lot of damage. We can spew a lot of emotional shrapnel if we let things 
um, build up instead of dealing with them biblically. One of the reasons we're culturally captive is that we don't know how to be angry in a constructive way. We just know how to be destructive in our anger. And when we're destructive in our anger, we're using deadly force, emotionally speaking. Being, I, I want to talk about um, destructive uses of anger, and then um, we'll also talk about uh, constructive things. But being destructive um, is, first of all, dredging up past sins. The whole idea when we forgive somebody, it's like we let it go, we, we release them into Jesus' hands, and then we let him keep it. And as someone has said, take someone's fault, what they have done against you. When you have forgiven them, throw it into the deepest ocean and then set up a no fishing sign. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to not dredge up past sins because if we have forgiven someone, it's not that we forget. It'll just go away on its own eventually. But we promise not to bring it up again because if, if, if once we say, I forgive you, that means I'm never going to use this as a weapon against you again. That's part of the reasons our relationships is messed up is that we're mad and we want to keep track of all the things that this person ever did so that we can bring them up as ammunition today for something that you did 20 years ago. Um, another way to, to be destructive in anger is to attack sensitive areas that the other person can't change or that they carry shame about. I just mentioned I'm a polio survivor. This is a very sensitive issue for me. It's something I cannot change. Um, For most of my life, I carried a lot of shame because it meant there was something terribly wrong with me. I am so grateful that Ray has never teased me or attacked me. You know, what's wrong with you? Other wives go out walking or running with their husbands. Why can't you? He would never even think about doing that. That would be destructive. That would be really harmful because there's nothing I can do about that. That's a sensitive area. So when you know that somebody has a sensitivity in an area, that needs to be absolutely off limits. Part of being culturally captive is, you know, that's an area you can leverage to get ahead. Because you know they're sensitive there. You know you can always hurt them by pressing that button. So we need to say, no, I will not do that. Another aspect of destructive anger is um, physical aggression, even just threatening it. it. I just really ought to slap you. If somebody were to say, I would never hit you, yeah, but you threatened it. The thought was there. That's very hurtful. It causes the other to be fearful. And fear is the opposite of love and intimacy. They cannot coexist together. They're on opposite ends of the spectrum. So we don't ever uh, use a threat against another person. Another way to be destructive in our anger is to let it fester. That's why Scripture tells us deal with it before the end of the day. And it doesn't mean you have to stay up till 3 in the morning, even though you have a 7 a.m. meeting, you can make an appointment. You know, we've got, we need to have a conversation about this. Make an appointment. If it may be the next day, it may be two days later, but you've dealt with it. You have put a bookmark there and say, we will return to this later, but we need to get some sleep tonight. Or justifying our anger, being really self protective and self defensive about it. How many times have you heard or even thought, you know, that's just the way I am, deal with it? I'm just an angry person. 
That's who I am. Get over it. Oh, so how Christ-like is that? Are you going to say something? I love the t-shirts you see girls wearing that say, like, spoiled or, you know, witch, but not witch. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's who I am. That's right. That's my identity. Deal with it. Yes, and I'm proud of it. Okay. How, um, I guess I mentioned that these destructive ways of, of letting our anger go, um, the, the way to be constructive is to go to the other end of the, the spectrum on those. Let's talk about now, how do we love each other in speech? I love Ephesians 4.29 as the standard for how we relate to each other. Let no unwholesome, that word in the Greek means rotten or putrid, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, which means building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So he says, when you're talking, don't be putrid and ugly and rotten in what you say. Instead, only say things that are helpful for building up and are grace-giving. Now, this does not preclude having difficult conversations because it's through conflict that we, we have intimacy with people. It means we need to choose our words very carefully and our body language as well, our, our verbal language and our body language. So we need to watch our words and guard our tongue. That's one of the reasons in this mediated, high-tech world that we have right now, the possibilities for being misunderstood are rampant because there is no tone of voice available in email or text messages. There's no visual cue as to what your body language is saying on the phone. Um, and so we're missing 93% of communication without the nonverbal part. So we need to be careful of how we say things um, as well as what we say. We also need to be careful about not using destructive words. Um, that would consist of lying, um, both by omission and commission, um, using bitter words of of throwing insults at people, name-calling. There is never any, any time that it's okay to call someone a name unless it's a term of endearment. Now, Jesus had his own little terms of endearment, you know, Boanerges, um, Sons of Thunder. You know, apparently James and John were really rough-and-tumble, get-it-on kind of guys, and when he called them Sons of Thunder, he wasn't putting them down and being ugly and and causing a wound to go on their souls. Um, he was talking about the way that they are, and in, in my guess is it was, it was very endearing. There's no place for name-calling in relationships. It's never going to achieve anything good. It's just going to tear the relationship down. The opposite of that, and especially for you guys, um, the, the, your power as fathers is unbelievable for choosing great names and terms to call your children because when your sons especially here tiger champion winner you know you're my little man that kind of thing he's going to rise up and meet that that uh, the way that you communicate to him when you call your daughters your princess your precious one um, you know I'm so crazy about you I could eat you up that kind of thing 
incredible power, especially from dad's mouth. It's just, that's one of the things that I've seen over years of ministry to those who are relationally and sexually broken is the power of dad to um, encourage and to challenge in a really good way. So there needs to be, um, we need to repent of insulting each other, of name calling. That just needs to go completely off the table. Angry words, the ones that we wouldn't say if we weren't angry, if they go off the table, that's one of the ways that we can love each other. There's, there's so much wisdom in following what the book of James tells us about being you know, slow to listen. I mean, quick to listen, slow to speak. Don't say the things that are occurring to you when you're angry. And cutting words. That's what sarcasm is. Sarcasm comes from two Greek words for tearing flesh. And the whole point of sarcasm is to tear somebody up. Um, some people, they communicate their, their wit in sarcasm, which it's not that there's no place for it, but if the point is to hurt somebody, that's not godly. Proverbs 12:18 says, There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword. That's a great description of cutting words. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. So we need to be careful about what we're saying that is cutting somebody to the shred of their, to the core of their being. Another way that we can avoid um, not uh, to, to be unloving in our speech is using nagging words. And I, very few people have ever been highly motivated by nagging. Nobody's ever been nagged into the kingdom. Nobody has been nagged into intimacy and greater love. Nagging just is it's manipulative and it's you know of course it's it's very frustrating when you ask somebody to do thing do something and they don't do it time after time after time, but that's a different kind of conversation that needs to be had rather than nagging. Another aspect of loving in speech is to avoid using exaggerated words, globalizing our communication, like saying, using the words always and uh, never, everything and nothing, because those are inaccurate. It, that, that saying, an absolute statement, you know, you never listen to me. That's absolutely not true. You know it's not true. And it just, it's hurtful to hear when somebody is absolute and global with us and it puts people on the defensive so it's great if we pay attention in scripture circle the alls and the nevers but don't use them in your relationships with other people um vengeful words of using one-upsmanship and escalating you know you're going to say this to me you know, you're, you're going to tell me that my mother wears army boots and I'm going to say, your mother had horrible bad breath, you know, and I'm just going to keep escalating. That's not loving. That's the opposite of being loving. We also need to avoid contemptuous words, words that are shaming to other people like loser and incompetent. Every time I hear that word, I am reminded of that of, of the word incompetent being hissed at me by a senior boy in high school. I was a freshman at the, in the Latin club, and I was trying to work the, the um, tape recorder, and this senior boy tried to get me to do something without giving me adequate instruction, and I was stumbling over it. And he just went, oh, you're so incompetent. And it stung 
so deeply um, because it, there was so so much shame in that, and there's still pain attached to that that one word. We need to be very careful about not using words of contempt, and also body language full of contempt. That eye rolls the universal language of teenagers, um, which keeps starting younger and younger. I don't know if you've noticed, but that's all about being contemptuous and size. And especially if you put the two of them, the sighing and the eye rolling together. You know, you are such a loser. I can't believe I have to deal with you. What in the world are you thinking? That kind of... Those are hurtful, and they're messing up our relationships. And to do that as a way of living is to be pickling in the world's brine. Um, We need to avoid anything that's meant to hurt another because it's unloving, it's unkind, it's unchristlike. Anything that tears down instead of building up. That's why we just have to be paying attention to what we say. We have a whole new uh, possibility of hurting other people these days because of our culture with cyberbullying and cyber gossiping. Um, and you know that there are more and more young people committing suicide or attempting suicide simply because of this issue. Let me show you something that was posted um, on YouTube.
quite eloquent. Ray showed you earlier that we learned that not uh, that it is true that most people get their spiritual input mainly from their parents. Um, emotionally, that's even more so um, because we are the ones who lay the foundation for what this is what life is. And um, some of us um, need to continue the good modeling that our parents gave us and others need to say, I am never going to do what I received in a turn to, to align ourselves with scripture rather than um, what our parents did. Um, about being loving in speech, let me quickly go through being constructive in how we speak to each other. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That means that when somebody is getting uptight and upset and things start getting stressed and they get more and more emotional, that when we back down and we soften our tone and we get quiet and we take the edge out of our voice, it is amazing how things can de-escalate. There is so much power in that. It doesn't matter if you're um, at the office with somebody that you're in conflict with or at home. It, it's just um, so incredibly powerful. We need to be showing, uh, to be using understanding words where we're looking under the surface of whatever's going on for the heart issues, understanding that a lot of people will say stuff and do things on the outside um, that may or may not be connected with what's going on in the, in the heart. And the Lord was always in the Gospels. He was always looking at the heart issue underneath the surface. So we need to be looking for those heart issues. We need to make a decision to be deliberate and in, in, um, intentional about using encouraging, appreciative, affirming words. Someone once said that encouragement is oxygen to the soul and um, imagine, suggested that we imagine that everybody's walking around with an invisible tattoo across their forehead that says, please encourage me. And I, I just think that is absolutely true. We need to be giving grace-filled words of acceptance and affirmation, choosing to, to do that deliberately. In terms of loving in action, how, how do we love each other? Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Where we mess up is not living according to this verse. It is, this is so powerful for all human relationships. We mess up by being unkind in our actions and our words, by choosing to be hard-hearted instead of tender-hearted. Um, that's often about self, about defensiveness and put, building up a wall between the person and ourselves, and to harbor unforgiveness. We could spend an entire day talking about forgiveness, but it's so important that we continually forgive others. The next thing I want to talk about, which is going to take a lot less time um, than than that, the bulk of what we just covered is. Um, we mess up our relationships by being culturally captive when we buy into what Ray was mentioning earlier. It's all about me. It's my survival. It's me getting ahead in the world. And it's all about me is just the cry of the world, isn't it? 
That's why reality shows, so many of them are very popular. We've got people pushing forward and believing that it's all about them and it's all about winning. And, and to me, it's amazing how people are more than happy to trot out their immature fleshliness for the world to see. One word, bridezilla. I don't know if you have even, you don't even have to have seen a single episode to imagine what it's like. Here's a girl who is going into her wedding believing she is the most important person on the planet and everybody else ought to kowtow to her because she is the bride. And to be willing to let um, cameras and microphones come into her ugliness so that the whole world can see that she is a bridezilla just totally amazes me. But that is an example of cultural captivity. It's all about me, looks like. If I want it, I should have it. And this has so many uh, manifestations. Ray and I knew a couple that um, were in their early 20s when they met and they started dating. And they met in the church and they started having sex on their first or second date. And um, through their entire dating period, and then they went ahead and got engaged, they continued to be very, very sexual with each other. And the thing about sex is that it is meant to be the super glue that holds a relationship together, and it needs to be the icing on the cake. And when you're building a cake, you don't start with the icing. That's the last part that goes on. But because that was the first thing that happened with them, it shut down all of their communication, all of their, their ways to see... I, do I really want to live with you? Do I want to be engaged in a lifelong relationship with you? And so if they would start to feel conflicted or start to see something not so great about the other person, well, let's just set that aside and get into bed, and then everything will be fine. Well, they went ahead and got married, and what they discovered not long afterwards is that this person that they married was somebody that they didn't even want to be friends with, much less married to for the rest of their lives, but the sex had shut things down. They had both de determined, I want it, I should have it, let's go for it. They are no longer married, not surprisingly. Um, another thing about it's all about me is I want to be happy. That is the most important thing. And it's not just about ourselves. I just recently, my, um, I, someone that I'm close to said, look, my granddaughter is involved in a, um, a very unhealthy relationship. I just want her to be happy. That's all that matters. I just want her to be happy. But if she thinks it's making her happy, but it totally violates what God is saying, it's not going to end up making her happy. But that was, that's all. I just want my children to be happy. There's something so much more and more important and bigger than just being happy. And if it's all about me and I want to be happy, if you get in the way of me being happy, I am going to resent you. So it messes up our relationships. It's a culture of entitlement, especially in materialistic America, where it says, I'm entitled to have whatever I want and I'm entitled to be happy. So you need to get on board with making me happy. I deserve the best. This drives a lot of marketing campaigns. L'Oreal, you know, you deserve it. Um, there was even recently an advice column in the Dallas Morning News where someone said, I've been dating this girl, I'm thinking about getting married, but what if I meet somebody even better than her once we got married? I'm really concerned that there's somebody better out there than her, and what should I do? 
And the uh, advice columnist very wisely said, you stop looking. <laughs> Once you marry this person, you stop looking and you stop comparing. <laughs> there might be somebody out there even better for you, but you make a commitment to this one. So you stop looking. Or, I have my rights, which means I have the right to be loved on my term. Relationships are about getting my needs met. It's about getting, not giving. About getting what I want rather than loving and serving you. It's about the right to a hot meal when I walk in the door. I have the right to spend money on whatever makes me happy at the moment. It's my money. Which totally goes against what God says, which is that it all belongs to him and he puts money into our hands. How are you going to manage my money, God says, but we think it's my money. Or the right to be independent and not need help. We're seeing more and more people going into um, old age and dementia issues where they're fighting horribly against the need to be taken care of because they're used to doing things my own way. I want to be in control. I want to be independent. And they really resent being put in a position where you're going to take my car away from me? How dare you say that you could take my car away from me? I have the right to be independent. But, but you can't see anymore and you can't hear anymore. You shouldn't be driving. I have a right to drive my car. You take my car away. You take my life away. That's kind of part of the cultural brine that we get pickled in. Another part of it's all about me is I should always get my way even in your life. And there's only one way to do things, and that's mine. I actually talked to somebody once who um, was angry at her husband because she went off on some church event on a Saturday morning, left the kids at home with dad, and when she got home, she was really mad because she learned that he had made them peanut butter and jelly sandwiches differently than she did, the way she did. And, he, and he's like, okay, bread, peanut butter, jelly. Put them together, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She goes, you put them on in the wrong order. You need to do it my way. My way is the right way to do things. Wow. Well, how is your intimacy level? <laughs> um, nobody should get in front of me in traffic. You know, how dare you cut into me? I'll tell you what, as long as we're doing this LBJ reconstruction along here, there are going to be a lot of people unhappy arriving at church because, you know, there's two lanes getting down to one. And, you know, we always have to come around it quite um, and, and LBJ getting onto the service road. And there's two lanes. And you always have, you know that there, you have to come into one, but somebody's always trying to get ahead of you. And it would be really easy to go, how dare you get ahead of me? Well, you knew that was going to happen. Why didn't you just back off? But we've got this idea that I should have nobody in front of me. It's okay for God to say, you shall have no other gods before me, and I shall have no other cars before me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then there's the fantasy of being able to change and control others. How many times have young people in high school and college been dating and they'll say, you know what, you know, that, that thing really drives me crazy, but that's okay because I'll change them after we get married. <laughs> no, <laughs> it doesn't work. Nobody has the power to change anybody but themselves. But it's so many relationships are messed up because of believing this fantasy that I can change somebody else. 
um, valuing appearance over relationship, particularly in the church, the perfect Christian family. I have a friend whose brother sexually molested her for years, and when she finally got up the courage to tell the youth pastor about it, he contacted her father, who was in ministry, and the father said, they were all going to get together and talk about it, and the father said, you do not need to come to my house. I, you will not mention this again. And he shut the youth pastor out of it. The father sat down with the, the girl and her brother and the wife and the dad and said, this will never be talked about again. It, it may as well have never have happened. Don't you ever bring it up. Well, she had gone through life being molested and her soul was lacerated night after night for years. And then her father finds out about it and says, I don't care. We're going to pretend it didn't happen. Well, pretending it didn't happen doesn't work, right? Um, and so she would act out in increasingly big ways. She would beat herself up. She was cutting herself. And, and the whole point was she wanted people to say, there is a problem here. This girl is really hurting. And to say, what happened? How can I help? But... Um, her father, who wanted everybody to think that they had the perfect Christian family, saw that she was acting out, begging for someone to acknowledge, I'm in pain. And he said, she has mental illness problems. Because it was so important to him that nobody blame the parents. It's the daughter who's all jacked up. And so that's, it's all about me. He was protecting his own reputation. The third thing I want to bring this plane in for a landing about is making feelings into an idol. It's a huge part of our cultural captivity. This is a misreading of reality. We feel our feelings as part of the physical, temporal world that we live in. And they're so real and they're so strong. Um, we can easily put more emphasis on them because we value the material over the, the, the non-material. We can't trust our feelings. Sometimes they're very helpful indicators that something's wrong or whatever, but we can't trust them as an absolute. Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can heal it? Who can trust it? Nobody should trust our feelings. We should pay attention to them, but not follow them as if they were the Word of God. Feelings should be experienced not denied. They should be enjoyed. God has emotion. He has feelings of delight and love and compassion and tenderness and as well as anger and that kind of thing. So, and he made us in his image. So feelings are good. I mean, they're part of being um, human beings made in the image of God, but they're not worthy of trust to the point where we follow our feelings no matter what. Campus Crusade has, a, had for years, uh, had a little... Um, brochure with an an image in it. it was very helpful. It was a little train, and it said that um, the train the the engine of the train is our will. Um, the feelings are the caboose of a train. The, the feelings follow along behind our choices, our beliefs, our values, our behaviors. The caboose has no power on its own. It just follows behind. But when we follow our feelings, follow your heart, what does your heart tell you to say? That's like driving a train with a caboose. It doesn't work really well. The culture encourages us to let our feelings guide us. Um, how many times have you heard, follow your heart? Terrible advice. So, 
if we make feelings into an idol and we put them above what God says, we're going to shipwreck our lives. We're going to have all kinds of problems. So if we say, you know, I've got feelings for someone. I'm attracted to somebody other than my spouse, so I need to follow that and see where it goes. My response when someone says, you know, I have feelings for so-and-so. You know, I know I'm a married woman, but I have feelings for this other man. You have feelings for them? So what? And that's a shock. Well, I need, I need to discover where that goes. Why? What if you had feelings like, I feel like I want to shoplift this, this lipstick over here. I feel like I want to. What should you do with that feeling? You go, bad feeling, bad feeling. Put it aside. Don't act on it. But we have this concept of if you have feelings for someone, we need to follow that where it goes need to shut it down if it doesn't glorify God if it's inappropriate if it's sinful we need to say my feelings are bad right now I need to to put those aside and not follow them take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ that includes our feelings take feelings captive to the obedience of Christ so I have feelings for somebody that I shouldn't okay scoop them up hand them over to Jesus and go you deal with these (laughs) these are trouble Another feeling that we can make into an idol, um, I've, been, I've had the privilege of dealing with um, in homosexual ministry for about 13 years and watching people walk out of it into holiness and purity. It's been awesome. But that's some of the things that we hear a lot, particularly among high school, uh, it, well, and even younger, junior high, now middle-aged kids and middle school kids. I'm attracted to other guys. I'm attracted to other girls. That means I'm gay. Well, you may have attractions. You may have very strong attractions. That doesn't mean that your conclusion is correct. So actually, if you're a teenager and you've got strong feelings for someone of the same sex, it means you're still growing up and you need to finish growing up. You're supposed to learn how to have intense relationships with people of the same sex before you can learn to have intense relationships with people of the opposite sex. It just means you're not finished growing up. It doesn't mean you're gay. Okay, let me bring this in. Um, I'd rather... Chaz Bono is now dancing on, you know, Dancing with the Stars and has brought transgender out, out into the the forefront and 7 o'clock in the evening into our homes if you're watching it. I'd rather be a male or a female. I feel like, you know, I'm a guy and I'm in a woman's body, so I need to fix that. I need to change what is wrong. I need to bring my outside into alignment with my inside. So I'm going to get sex reassignment surgery. That's letting your feelings lead you down paths that God doesn't want us to go. So um, don't be a cultural captive. When we make our feelings into an idol instead of following what God says, we're cultural captives. When we believe it's all about me, we're cultural captives. When we don't live our lives guided and informed by love, we're cultural captives. So what I want to close is by saying, if you're a pickle and you've been sitting in the world's messages and values, um, take yourself out of the pickle jar, put yourself into a jar of God's word and God's thoughts and God's people, and let the pickle part leach out and replace it with Jesus' juice, 